well, that was awesome. Um, so I, some of you who are uh, in ministry, leaders who do this, you, walk, you, you have a sense of where you want to lead, but then you also have a burden for where students in the room are. And so I imagine a full 24 hours in the camp, um, you guys have begun to ride the roller coaster of, uh, Mikey talked about earlier this morning, of Camp High. And so there's, there's some of the like fun, endorphin-filled, we got to pick your event that you got to do today, that there's a ton of energy around that, but also you've kind of been sitting in a quiet room that's got air conditioning for a while, and so some of you maybe are kind of creeping down in your seat a little bit, getting a little tired. And so I realize, and I'm, I'm not calling anybody out, don't be ashamed, um, I recognize that it's going to be every evening, it's going to be a challenge for you and for me to, to, to stay dialed into what the Lord wants to do. And so I just want to challenge you. Maybe, maybe you're a middle schooler in the room and, and some of this feels like it's a little bit above your head. I think you can get it. I just want you to know, like, I, I think there's more in you maybe than a lot of the world is giving you credit for because you're a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, and they're like, oh, you'll grow up someday and it'll make sense for you. Like, I actually think today's the day. And then maybe you're a high schooler, maybe you're a senior in high school, and you're like, man, I have a few more days until my, my high school camp career is over. And you've been here and you've done that, and it can be easy to dial out. And I just, I just want to encourage you to not do that either. And so uh, as we move into our time in the Word, I, I know it's not as high energy as worship or as high energy as some of the events you've had today or even as cool as the video. Like I thought I was going to try and come out here and like make all of my sermon rhyme, and then my brain started to short circuit even as I tried to think through that. So like I'm not going to be able to do that. So I recognize that listening to somebody speak to you feels like, man, this is not the same level as everything else that you've experienced. But what I really want to just invite you to do is just to ask the Lord to help you to dial in. That over the next few moments that you'll be like, okay, Lord, if you have something for me, speak it to me in a way that I can hear you and respond to you and follow after you. Can we do that together? Amen. So I... Uh, I asked you a question this morning. I asked you lots of questions this morning, but a particular question that I asked you this morning was, who is the most famous person you have ever met? And so somebody said Blueface, who I still don't know who that is. I didn't go back to my room and like look, look Blueface up. I don't even say him because I don't know if it's a male or a female, but I don't know who Blueface is. Um, but I am going to tell you who my, the most famous person I ever met is. And it's not going to be all that impressive to you, but it just sets up the sermon for today. And so... Uh, Back when I was a senior in high school, uh, my family is from Ghana, West Africa. And so if you are looking at a map and you kind of see the outline of Africa, right where it hooks in before it goes south again, there's a small little nation right there in the corner, and the name of that nation is Ghana, and that's where my family originates from. And so I was going with my parents and with my nephew uh, to Ghana to spend time with my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, uh, and spending about three weeks over there. And so we were getting ready to go, and, and so um, like any, any flight like that, oftentimes you have to have a layover somewhere. And so our layover was in London, and our, our layover was eight hours in the London airport. Now, mind you, I have family that lives in London, 
So if I were in that situation, if I were the adult in the situation, which I was almost 18 years old, so kind of like an adult, so my suggestion was, why don't we have our family come pick us up and we hang out for seven of the eight hours and then we come back and then fly the rest of the way? My parents thought was, we might miss our flight. We have eight hours. I think we're going to be okay. So we stayed in the London airport for eight hours. You can only go to so many bookshops and gift shops. You can only go to the London McDonald's so many times before you're starting to lose your mind. So that usually happens about 90 minutes in. So that's where we were at. Me and my nephew, he's a year and a half younger than me. And so we're, we're like freaking out, trying to figure out what we're going to do next. We, we convince our parents to give us more money so we can get McDonald's. We get McDonald's. And as we're walking back to our parents, we see a man named Chris Carter walking through the London airport. If you're a football fan, uh, Chris Carter was, the wide receiver, was one of the wide receivers for the Minnesota Vikings. If you're not a football fan, you don't care who Chris Carter is, but it'll become important in a second. So uh, maybe you know Chris Carter, not because 22 years ago he used to play wide receiver, but because now he works for Fox Sports. And his job on Fox Sports is every Monday after all the games are complete, except for the Monday night football game, he comes on and he does commentary, but his whole segment is literally he just says these words, come on, man. And, and, and come on, man represents you did something extremely boneheaded. Like you did something that when everybody else like that has any level of common sense of looking at it, they'd be like, why would you do that? And so the whole segment is showing highlights of people doing silly things during a football game and him saying to them, come on, man. Now, here's the reason why I bring that up. Because I think that that statement probably originated in the London airport when my nephew followed him into the restroom to get an autograph. FYI, if somebody goes to the restroom, do not ask them for an autograph. And so I wasn't in the room because I have sense enough to not follow people into the restroom. But I imagine that he probably said as he stood in the restroom washing his hands, come on, man, let me use the restroom. And so this was our big moment to meet somebody famous, and we kind of ruined it. We got the autograph. He wasn't happy about it. Like, he kind of walked off like these two punk kids getting on my nerves. But, like, we got, that was our most famous, famous moment meeting somebody. Now, I want you to hold all of that in your head because I'm going to come back to that here in a little bit. Because as we walk through the text, we're going to be thinking through some of the ways that people encounter Jesus. And there's uh, four stories that are kind of linked right next to each other at the end of John chapter 1 that highlight some of the ways that people have uh, dealt with what their, their knowledge or their lack thereof of Jesus. And I hope that you can get your arms around that. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into John 1, starting in verse 19. And so Jesus, thank you. I'll just give the, 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 the summary of where we're going to end up, that the way that you respond to us is not just, come on, man. Instead, it's come and see. And so, Lord, I pray for the students that are under the sound of my voice. I pray for the leaders that are under the sound of my voice, that this would be an opportunity for us to lean into knowing you. Lord, I pray that you remove every distraction. Remove everything that the enemy of our souls would want to use to cause us to miss the invitation that you are making through your word to us to know you better. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Amen. And so story number one, there's these people called the Pharisees, and they are uh, the religious elite. They are, uh, uh, they are Jewish priests that are high-level priests. And when we read about them in this text, um, they have a knowledge about God. 
but we'll see that their knowledge hasn't somehow translated into how they respond to God. And so uh, John uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 19, would say this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he comes after me, and the strap of his sandals I am not worthy to tie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. Then the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water and said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, here's what I want to do. You're actually seeing two responses to, to Jesus right next to each other that are really interesting. So the first one is the, these priests, they've been sent on assignment to ask John, hey man, who are you? So John is a, John's just a different dude. Um, when I was uh, early in ministry, I had a really good friend who was a student pastor in Houston, and I would go down uh, once or twice a year, spend time with him because we were good buddies, but then usually I would preach to his youth group, and sometimes I would get to preach Sunday morning for their church. And one of the leaders of their church came to me one day and said, hey, I just feel like the Lord wants me to tell you that you have the ministry of John the Baptist. And I was like, I, I, I actually don't want that. Because if you know about John the Baptist, John the Baptist isn't necessarily on everybody's Christmas card list. Uh, John the Baptist was known for um, eating wild locusts and honey. So I'm from uh, the South Bay, which is near L.A. proper. And so my wife and I, when we go on date nights, we go uh, into L.A. or sometimes we'll go to Long Beach or sometimes we'll drive down to Orange County. And we'll, we're, we're, we're foodies. Like we like good food. We'll go out of our way for good food. And I have never spent a whole bunch of gas money to be like, where's the place in town where I can eat wild locusts? Like it's just not my thing. Like, like some of you, uh, maybe, maybe you're into eating grasshoppers, but that's, that's not my thing. Maybe the honey makes it taste good going down, but I don't imagine that it's all that great. Here's another thing I know about John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist walked around in a camel hair set of clothing. I wanted to say jumpsuit. I'm not quite sure it's a jumpsuit, but he walked around in camel hair. So here's what I know about the Bible. The Bible takes place in Israel. Israel's hot. Not only that, but John the Baptist baptized people in water. When I go to the zoo, you know what smells disgusting? Wet, sweaty camel hair. And so I definitely don't want to walk around in wet, sweaty camel hair. 
But maybe the third thing about John that is the most um, challenging is the message that John preached. Because John's pure message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that message is really confrontational because if I were to say to you that you need to repent, that means you've done something wrong. You need to acknowledge it. You need to, you need to let the Lord know that you did something wrong and you need to turn away from the thing that you've been doing. And so this is John's one message. Everywhere that John goes, every time that John preaches, John preaches repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So much so that one day he gets called into the, the chambers of, the, of Herod, who is over Israel. And Herod says, hey, what do you got for me? And so this is the time when you're with influential people that you tell influential people the things that they want to hear. And John didn't, didn't understand the assignment. And so John says to him, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You shouldn't be trying to have an improper relationship from, with somebody that's in your family. And Herod gets a little bit upset and ends up cutting off John the Baptist's head. This is why I don't want John's ministry, because I never want to preach a sermon at the end of it that people want my head to no longer be attached to my body. This is the story of John the Baptist. And so John, in his uniqueness, with his unique message, with his uh, what feels crazy to us type style that he is baptizing, and all of a sudden, these priests sent by the Pharisees walk up and they say, hey, bro, who are you? And they're, they're wrestling because he is so different than they are, and, and they're looking for something because they know the Word of God. It's their job to understand the Word of God, and they believe the Word of God to be true, but somehow they have information that they know that hasn't translated to the way that they respond. Can I have a conversation with Christians in the room? My biggest fear for you is not ignorance. My biggest fear for you is lack of obedience. Because far too often, we as Christians have all the answers that if you put us to the test, we could win at Bible quiz. You could, we could tell you the stories. We may not be able to tell you where the stories are at, but we can tell you the stories. We can tell you that the Bible would say this or that we should believe this, but when you look at the way that we respond to what we know, we seem a lot more like the Pharisees than we should. These Pharisees um, are, little, are asking pointed, specific questions. They're saying, hey, are you Elijah? Because in the Old Testament, when you read the story of Elijah, Elijah was this prophet that was different than everybody else around him, that he stood against the, the enemies of his day. And at the end of his life, the Lord was like, man, you too good to die. I'm just going to take you up on a chariot of fire. Like, I wish that dude had said to me, you got the ministry of Elijah. Because you know what I want? A chariot of fire. You know what I drove up here? A rental electric car that I had to charge like every three minutes. I don't imagine you got to charge a chariot of fire. And so they're looking at this prophet and they're saying, what we understand is that that prophet was sent by God to show us the power of God. Maybe you're him. And he's like, nah, I ain't, I ain't him. And then they say, well, are you the prophet then? Not just a prophet, but the prophet that we've been waiting for. The prophet that all of the Old Testament talks about and says that there is going to be one that comes that is like the greatest prophet of all time, and he will truly show you who God is. Are you that guy? And he was like, mm-mm, I'm not him either. But I want you to recognize something. Here's what's happening. 
These guys are looking at the scripture and they're saying that the scriptures, we believe them to be true and we're looking for somebody to be the embodiment of what we read. What they're saying is that every single thing that they've read, they know points to somebody that's going to be the power of God to deliver people from their sin and deliver people from evil. And they're saying, are you that guy? And so can I say to you that when you read the scriptures, um, here's one of the ways that you can be astounded and trust the truth of the scriptures. Uh, the Bible is composed of 66 books that I think is made by 40 authors that's written over a period of something like 6,000 years. And yet tells one story. Uh, here's what I know about me. If I don't go back and check my previous text messages of what I said to somebody, I'm likely to forget what we were talking about. So if I had to write over 6,000 years, we had to pass the story between 40 people and that we were writing in 66 different installments, that story is going to be so chaotic that it's not going to make any kind of sense. Um, do you ever, I don't know if this is a thing anymore, but for leaders in the room, this is a moment for you. Do you remember what mad gabs are? And so mad gabs are these like um, books that they're telling a story and then they have this little insert. Mad libs, mad libs. You guys are looking at me like, like I was crazy, and that's because I was, because I had no idea what I was talking about. So, mad libs. And they would be like, insert noun. And so, you're reading through this story. One day, we went to insert noun. And depending on who you were, if you're somebody who wants to tell like a really coherent story, you're like, the store. If you're somebody that like just wants to cause chaos, you're like, zebra. You're like, wait a minute, what? And the thing about Mad Libs is that Mad Libs, for every different person, you're going to get a very different story. And so for the scriptures to take this many different people to tell one singular story, and all of that story points to Jesus, is a really spectacular and astounding thing. What continues to be interesting to me is that John is telling them, hey, I am not this guy. But when he shows up, you'll know. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm not on his level. I'm going to tell you that this is uncommon in human history. Because people like to make themselves more than what they are. Uh, I used to run track when I was in high school. Ran a little bit in college. Uh, I was backstage talking with Harry and Sarah. And they were like, man, we love your shoes. I was like, you know what these shoes are? They're supposed to make me look like I'm athletic, but I'm not. <laughs> there was a day that I was, not anymore. I'm working full time on this dad bod and I am good at it. <laughs> but when I ran track, I was a sprinter. And when you were gonna get into a particular heat of your race as a sprinter, what they would do is they would call out a time and they'd say, if you've ran faster than this time, then you could be in the fastest heat. And the goal is to be in the fastest heat so you have the best competition. And what I learned really quickly is that everybody's a liar. Because like the guy would walk up and he'd be like, all right, if you've run the 100 meters in eight seconds and like seven guys would get up. I'm like, nobody in human history has ever ran that fast. But we think more of ourselves than what we are. So it's uncommon that John would say, no, I'm not the guy and I'm not even worthy to be on the same level as the guy. But you've read the scriptures and there's somebody that comes before, like a voice in the wilderness crying out saying, hey, make way because the Lord is coming. I'm that guy. I'm somebody that's using my life to point to the truth of who God is because I trust who he is. And then, and I don't know if you've noticed this yet, 
We're 29 verses into John, and he still hasn't said Jesus' name yet. That's like watching a movie and being 40 minutes in, and the main character still hadn't showed up yet. And so finally in verse 29, John says, oh, and by the way, Jesus showed up one day. And John the Baptist admits, I've actually never met him. But what I know about him is that that I've seen the Spirit descend on him, and that guy, he's the one that baptizes in the Spirit. And so he said, I've seen something in him that goes beyond just the information that I know, but I see what God declared happening right in front of me through this guy. He can be trusted. He also says something about, behold, the Lamb of God, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But what we're seeing is these priests... And John both have a set of information, and the priests are skeptical about it. And John says, I trust it because of what I've seen in him, though I don't know him. Let's keep reading. Verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for what is about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of God, or the son of John, not the son of God. That is not what your Bible says. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, so so John the Baptist has had this moment where he finally encounters Jesus, and he declares, man, he's the guy. And then the next day, Jesus is passing by again, and these guys who follow, they're students of John the Baptist. He repeats to them, behold, the Lamb of God, and it says that they followed him. Now, I think we got to define that because follow in our day and age means a lot of different things. Um, Follow could mean that they were kind of interested from a distance, like on social media, where they kind of waited for him to say cool things, but they really didn't interact with him. Because follow, that does mean follow in our day and age. Follow could also mean awkwardly stalking somebody that you don't have permission to follow. And so, and it actually looks like when you read the text, that's what's going on. But there's also a definition of following Jesus that's not this disinterested, I'm watching from a distance and and seeing if you can entertain me. Nor is it, I don't have permission to be near you, but there's this degree of following Jesus that says, I want to know you and I'm following after you so that way I can see who you really are. And so most likely, Andrew and uh, the the disciple that's not named is John. He doesn't name himself in his book that he's writing. They are following after Jesus, and Jesus spins around, and he asks them a really important question. What are you seeking? Can I ask you a really important question tonight? What are you seeking? Why are you here? Are you here because your parents were willing to pay for it and they're like, you need to get out of the house for a week and you're like, I need to get out of the house for a week. Are you here because, man, all my buddies do this. All my girls do this. I guess I should come. 
Are you here because last year you had a really good time and you got a number from a girl and you don't know her last name, but you, you swear the Lord told you that you were going to marry her. And so you're just hoping that she came to week 10 like you came to week 10? Yeah. Don't admit that. <laughs> what are you seeking? Because you could follow Jesus for a lot of things. You could follow Jesus because it gets you in the circle of people that, um, seem, to, that seem to make some space for you, and so uh, that makes sense. You could, you could do it because your parents stay off your case if you're hanging out at the church instead of hanging out with those other set of friends. You could follow Jesus for a lot of reasons. I'm interested in the answer, but I'm just as interested in the question, what is it that you're seeking from Jesus? But what's also intriguing to me is their response to Jesus when Jesus asked them that question. If you get to spend time with somebody who, according to the guy that you've been learning from, is the guy who takes away the sins of the world, I don't think the appropriate answer to the question, what are you looking for, is, hey, Jesus, what's your address? Like, that actually feels kind of silly to me. Like, if I were with the president of the United States, uh, I'm not going to ask him, hey, what was your address that you grew up at? If I was, uh, funny story, um, our church does a thing called Christmas celebration where like a couple of uh, Sundays before Christmas, we just do like this kind of neighborhood block party. And we invite in all types of people. We invite in people from ministries that we partner with. One of the ministries that we partner with is uh, called Royal Family Kids, uh, which uh, seeks to minister to kids who have been in foster care uh, and just kind of give them uh, a camp experience that we hopefully, we hope is one of the best weeks of their year. And then we also do a mentoring program with them. So there was a set of kids that were part of that ministry, and we, were, we had tacos, and they were sitting down eating tacos, and I came in, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and so like I was wearing um, a Lakers hat, I was wearing like a little zip-up, and, and I walked up to the table, and this little four-year-old boy named David turned to his mom, she was like, he was like, LeBron James is about to sit at our table. <laughs> I'm like... Let's just roll with it. All right, kid, I'll be LeBron for you. But here's what I know. If I had been LeBron James, if his first question for me was, what's your address? He would have wasted the moment. Like, he just would have missed it. And so this is a really weird response to Jesus. He turns around, finds you following him, maybe without permission, and says, what are you looking for? And your response is, where do you stay? But maybe they're not asking for his address. Maybe they're asking something deeper. Maybe they're saying, hey, everybody else is seeing you pass by. Everybody else is seeing that you are walking by and see you at a fleeting moment doing something, but we want to get past the activity that you're doing and you being out on the street walking somewhere, and we actually want to go to the place where you dwell. We actually want to spend some time with you when you are set down and settled. Like, where's the place where, not that you're just passing through, but where's the place that you remain? I want to know you there. And maybe for some of you, Jesus has been this passing idea that you heard somebody like a John talking about him. Maybe you've seen other people have activity with him, or you've heard stories, or he's passed by really quickly on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. But when Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking? The response being, where is it that you stay? It's really saying, can I be where you're at? Now, this is a moment. Because Jesus knows our hearts and knows us, 
that it would have been really easy for him to pull a Chris Carter and say, come on, man. This would be really easy for him to say, look, I know how all this is going to end, and, and I know where you're going to be unfaithful and the mistakes that you're going to make. Like, I know that maybe you're not seeking me for the right reasons. I know that maybe you're just curious because I, I've got some fame around me. Come on, man, you can't come to my house. It'd be really easy for him to say, of all the things that you could ask of me, because you just heard that I take away the sins of the world, maybe the right response would be, would you take away my sins? Would you show me the character of God? But instead, you ask me where I stay. Come on, man. But instead, his response to them is, come and see. Like, I just, I just want you to capture the character of God, that he's kind enough through Jesus to make space for you, that he's not hiding from you saying, hey, figure it out on your own. But if you are seeking after him and wanting to know who he is, that his response to you is, come and see. That his response to you through every page of the scriptures, if you want to know the person and the character of God in a way that you can trust it, it's not, come on, man, you should know by now. It's come and see the goodness of who God is. And these dudes are lounging up in Jesus' house. So much so that it takes till the next day for Andrew to get up and go tell Peter, hey, Peter, we found the Messiah. Now, English doesn't do that sentence justice. Um, one of the words found in the original language Greek, not that you wanted to learn any Greek today, but this is something you could bust out someday when you're like trying to impress somebody. Uh, the word found is the word herecumen. Herecumen is where we get the word eureka. Eureka is the word that they used to use back in the 1840s in this part of the world when people were looking for gold, when they would be like going through all of this dirt and sand and all of a sudden a, a rock that looked like it was useless would be brushed off and all of a sudden it would shine with all the brilliance of gold. Like they wouldn't be like, hey man, I found some gold. That's awesome. Which would have been more smart, right? Because you don't want anybody else to find gold. What they would say is, well, in the middle of that, and they would be sifting through the dirt and cleaning off the rocks, and all of a sudden they would find gold. They would be like, Eureka, I found gold. Hey, Eureka, everybody put your attention over here. I found gold. And so Andrew's response to encountering Jesus wasn't like, oh, well, that's cool. It feels like it was running through the streets while Peter was trying to fix the nets and saying, hey, Eureka, I found the Messiah. The Messiah meaning Christ. And so I hope you know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ is the description that Jesus is the one that the scriptures would describe as going to come into the world and set the rule and reign of God in a way that it makes the world entirely right. And so Andrew is running with excitement through the streets, screaming out, hey, Eureka, I found what we've been looking for all of our lives, all the studying, all the praying, all the hoping. I found him. And Peter, when somebody responds to something like that, you're like, man, I got to see this. Because either you found something awesome or you have lost your mind. And either way, I got to find out. And so he goes and encounters Jesus, and Jesus begins to speak to him in a way that nobody else can speak to him. You know you're a bad dude when you can just meet somebody and change their name. He's like, Simon, Simon Johnson, son of John, Simon Johnson. I'm not going to call you that anymore. 
I'm going to call you Peter. And Peter literally means the rock or the stone. Not like Dwayne Johnson, the rock, but, like, like, but similar. He, he literally began to speak something that was changing his trajectory about him. You're going to be a different dude because you've met me now. And then, let's finish. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so here that is like, uh, so in my community, um, Torrance is the main, uh, kind of the biggest city in our area. To the west of Torrance is all the desirable communities like Manhattan Beach. That's where athletes uh, live and hang out. Hermosa Beach, that's where people live who want to live in West Hollywood but can't afford West Hollywood, so they live in Hermosa. Redondo, that's where you raise your family so they can have a beach experience. To the east of Torrance is places like Harbor City. When I moved to California five years ago, and when people would be like, oh, you're new to there, where do you live? I'd be like, oh, I live in Harbor City. They'd be like, oh, oh. Nazareth is that part of town where people are like, oh, so you live in the hood, huh? And so he literally says, you're, he, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the Son of God, the one who's going to make the world right, the one that Moses wrote about, that the prophets talked about, that he come from Nazareth? Nah, man, you don't come from Nazareth. And Philip said to him the same thing that Jesus would say. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so here, this conversation, he's walking up to Jesus like, I got to see this. This dude from the hood is not the Son of God. He might be crazy, but he is not the Son of God. And he said, oh, man, an Israelite indeed. There's no deceit in you. And he's like, you know me? He's like, yeah, man, I saw you hanging out under the fig tree. And his response was, you are the son of God. And Jesus was like, that impressed you? Like, I got a whole lot, is that all it took? Like, I got a whole lot more than that. And it's this moment where this skeptical dude, he actually didn't learn anything more about Jesus. He actually found something out about Jesus knowing him. And can I tell you that this week, one of the things that I want more than you knowing Jesus is for you to know that Jesus knows you. Because that's actually a really scary proposition. If you were just running your mouth the other, like just beforehand, like, man, that dude, Jesus ain't the son of God. He's from Nazareth. And so I imagine there was a moment when his heart skipped a beat when he was like, wait a minute, how you know me, Jesus? And Jesus was like, man, I saw you way back under the tree. Did you see me when I was having the conversation with Philip? 
And Jesus deeply knows you and still says to you, come and see. Man, that should blow your mind a little bit because nobody else in the room knows you like that. Nobody else in the world knows you like that, which is why every teenager is convinced that if I just go close my door and lock it, you have no idea what's going on in there. We actually do know what's going on in there. And me saying that made you feel like, oh, do you? But Jesus knowing you in that way and still saying, come and see, come near to me, come spend time with me, come know me in a way that you could not possibly know anybody else and be known by anybody else. It's the greatest invitation you might ever receive. And it's one thing if Jesus hangs out with you and ignores what he knows about you. It's another thing if he's able to cure it because of the sacrifice that he would make. This is why it's interesting that John would say two times, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That doesn't feel as important of language to us, but it was vital language to them. Because in their system, uh, like, like later on this week, you're going to have opportunity, maybe even uh, later on tonight when you go into your cabin time and you're talking through what you heard, to repent of sin. And for us, it's as easy as praying a prayer, but for them, it was this sacrificial system where something had to die because sin was costly. Most often, it was this spotless, pure lamb that they would bring before and cut its throat, let it bleed out, and then set it on fire because something had to die because sin kills things. And so for John to say, in the middle of a crowd of people, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because that in their system, every time you committed a sin, you had to make a new sacrifice. And so for somebody to be this once and for all sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, that's a big deal. I need to know that guy. And John is making this statement about Jesus that has to do with the character of God in Jesus. It's almost like he's describing him with a pet name. It's almost as if he's saying about him, well, yeah, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's Mary and Joseph's kid. He's actually my cousin. I could tell you all the details about him, but if you actually want to know the deepest essence of who he is, let me just tell you what I've experienced of him, that he's the one that's able to cover my sin. It's almost as if the descriptions that were read on the page leaped off the page in such a way that it became so real to him that the description of him is how he talked about him. And you get this. That's why people get nicknames. Man, I'm trying to think of a nickname of a friend of mine that I could tell you that's not demeaning or inappropriate, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up a blank. <laughs> but it, you, you often call people what you know about them because of the experiences that you've had. Or if you're in a relationship with somebody and you've got a pet name, it's because of something that's significant between the two of you. So for instance, my wife, um, if you're a Spanish speaker, you'll get this right away. My wife calls me viejo <laughs> because I am seven years older than her. And she's called me viejo for 10 years. Like, like back when I was 30 and I didn't have any gray in my beard, she called me the old guy. And now that I actually have the beard to match, she's like, <laughs> I was just calling you what was true before you saw it in the mirror. And it's actually a term of affection because of the depth of the relationship that we have. 
And so it's interesting that John would see Jesus and cry out that this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that this is not just Jesus, this is just not the kid from Nazareth, this is not just Joseph and Mary's kid, this is not just the guy who is this kind of itinerant preacher that people are wondering about, but this is the guy that fulfills the description of what God is able to accomplish. We are seeing God being put on display right in front of us. The fact that the scriptures would do that often when you read your Bible, that it's when you see somebody give Jesus a nickname, it's telling you something about the character of God that's being displayed in Jesus. So, for instance, if you flip to the end of your Bible, same author as the book of John is a book called Revelation, and he's writing, and he's in this moment when he sees Jesus shining in all of his glorified brilliance, he looks at him and he says, you're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Like he's like, you're, you were here before everything started, and when everything is over, you're still going to be standing tall. Um, there, there's a, a moment in that same book where the angels would be crying out, holy, 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 and then they would say that you are the one which was and is and is to come. It's that, that same idea of Jesus being this e eternal that he has always been, he will always be, but he's also really present with you right now. Then they would, they would, you would see things like, like Jesus himself would give nicknames like, I'm the bread of life. Other things that people would say of him is like, man, you are the chief cornerstone, that if we're going to build our faith on something that we build on you, that he would say that I am the door. Other people would call him the deliverer. They would call him elect, Emmanuel, the faithful God, the, one, the holy one of the Father, that they would call him the light of the world, the lily of the valley, the master, the Messiah, the prophet, the propitiation, the rabbi, the ruler. He is the seed of Jesse. He is the root of David. He is the savior. He is the faithful God. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And you don't get that because you have some information in your head. You get there when you have an intimate experience with him through your heart. And so I want to go back to the question that we asked a little bit earlier. What do you seek? Some of you the Lord has blessed you with a brilliant mind. And I thank the Lord for that. The danger of a, of a brilliant mind is it can make you skeptical, critical, and untrusting. And my fear for you is that you wouldn't trust Jesus because you're waiting for enough information to be proved to you to prove that he's worthy. But I actually want to tell you that what you already know is enough that you, because of your sin, who deserve to be responded to with a come on man, have been responded to with a come and see. That the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is making an invitation for you to know him, but more so to even be known by him. And I don't want you to miss that. For others of you, you're like, man, I'm new to this. And like, am I supposed to be able to like rattle off all those descriptions of Jesus by the end of the week? Could you do that slower so I could like write it down? No. In fact, I'll tell you that your faith is always going to be better than your theology. Here's what that means. You will always have to trust more than what you understand. But what I want you to know is that what you have is trustworthy enough to come and see who Jesus is. And my prayer for you over and over again this week is going to be for the courage to do so. Let me pray for us.
And so Jesus, would you help us to not be like the Pharisees who knew a lot about you but didn't trust you? Would you help us to be like John and like Peter and like Andrew and, and the disciple John, like Philip and Nathaniel, who, when they had an opportunity to even have their doubts wrestled with, that they wanted to know you more than they wanted to be settled in their doubts. And so when you gave them the opportunity to come and see, they ran towards you so that they could come and see. And so, Lord, would you do that with these students today? Some have doubts, and yet every page of your word points to the character of who you are. And all of it says that if you would know him in his per you know you in your person and, and in your goodness and in your kindness, and know that you're not just kind to us by ignoring what's wrong with us, but instead that you by your power are able to fix it. That there's an invitation from you like none that we've ever known. Would you stir these students to know who you are and to be known by you? You're trustworthy because you're good. It's in your name I pray. Amen.